You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben Folks, International Fight Week is upon us. Yep. And in stark contrast to the most recent International Fight Weeks, you and I will be traveling to Vegas this week, not necessarily to attend these fights live but to attend the co-main event podcast 10-year anniversary meetup with some of the beloved patrons of the co-main event podcast. Some of our uh, supporters over there at the Patreon page will be journeying down to Vegas with us. We have a fun-filled weekend of frivolity planned down there. I guess this could be the last time anyone outside of the Patreon hears from us. Yep. So uh, do you have any last words, any final thoughts that you want to leave our general listening audience with just in case we both perish uh, in a dehydration slash alcohol consumption slash it's going to be 108 degrees the day we arrive mishap? Yeah. See, you talk about the frivolity and everything and about how we're going, but not to cover these fights live the way we'd usually be going to a UFC event in Las Vegas. Like I went to the one this time last year uh, to cover it. And let me tell you something, you know, what was not going on when you're covering that one as a media member live at T-Mobile arena is uh, all you can drink special. You know, what will be going on when we watch these fights with all our CME compadres, all of our beloved patrons, all you can drink special now. Yeah. Is that ultimately probably going to be the cause of our deaths? Maybe. Uh, is there another way I want to go out? Mm, I mean, crushed uh, underneath the, the weight of a battleship as I am uh, rescuing everybody from its its terrible burning metal girth, perhaps. But other yeah. than that, this is this, the next one on the list is all you can drink special with the CME Patreons in Las Vegas. Yeah, we'll see if we can get you a medal for bravery for this particular endeavor. Mm-hmm. This is a good reminder to the people that you need to get down with the team over at patreon.com slash co-main event, where in addition to this podcast, the co-main event podcast proper that you're listening to right now, which comes out for free in your podcasts and timelines uh, every Monday, we're over there at the Patreon we're party rocking all week. We got the yep. Wednesday live chat, Thursday doing the damn thing, Friday power hour, a whole lot of MMA and other stuff happening all week long. Plus, you get the invite to the 10-year anniversary meetup and any other future meetups we might have. This one is sold out. Sorry to get people's hopes up, only to dash them by saying that uh, the response to this was somewhat overwhelming. We didn't necessarily expect anyone at all to want to meet up with us down in Las Vegas, but it turns out they do. And so we filled all the slots for this this meetup, but if we do it again in the future, people might want to be already over on the Patreon page ready to go. The other thing you get is an invite to the CME's official Discord message board, where the patrons are over there chopping it up on the regular. Someone posted today, and this is why I said uh, that we might die in a heat-related mishap. Ben, I'm just going to tell you uh, the degrees, the temperatures 
okay. for how hot it's going to be in Vegas when we arrive. Uh, Thursday, when we get there, it's supposed to be 106. Uh, Friday, it's supposed to be 105. Then over the weekend on Saturday for the actual UFC event, supposed to be 104 degrees and then 104 degrees again the day that we fly out. And this was posted earlier. The big homie Ben Gabriel, longtime supporter of the podcast, put that up on the Discord. Somebody else, a Vegas Vegas local, local came on there to reply, oh, good, it's going to cool down this weekend. (laughs) So uh, the people from the area will be enjoying some temperate weather. You and I will be melting, melting like candle wax out there in the hot Las Vegas sun. Man, I'm going to be in that pool on the roof of the jockey club. Uh, And if you need to find me, I'll just just look for the fella with a bunch of the the, the white out sunblock covering his nose, holding a, a, a fruit drink out of a glass shaped like a boot or some shit. That'll be me. Man, you're going to look like such a nerd with that uh, sunblock all over your nose. It's going to be like <laughs> some 1980s Revenge of the Nerds shit out here. We'll see. We'll see who's laughing when <laughs> we fly home on Sunday morning and your nose is just burnt to shit. Yeah, rest of my body will be okay. The nose will be just burned. It's all the way out there. Just crazy burned. This is where we got to follow Dustin Poirier's advice and stay hydrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very important to stay hydrated. That's why uh, when you you see me get there with my like hard hat that has a space for like the beer cans and the straws leave right in my mouth, one of them is going to be a glass of water. Okay. Yeah, that's good. You're going to be staying hydrated. That's The the other one will be uh, a Miller Lite, but one of them will be a glass of water. That's smart. That's Mm -hmm. a veteran move. We got music this week from our guy, uh, Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from the him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, as you guys know by now, that's the word beats with a Z, dbeats7. Uh, three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. Number one, round number one, on the surface, Israel Adesanya versus Jared Cannonier seems like it might be kind of a ho-hum main event on an otherwise blockbuster UFC 276 card, but is Cannoneer more dangerous than people are giving him credit for? I'll make the case, and Ben Folks will probably tell me how wrong I am. And in round number two, doing it again, 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 brother. In some ways, it seems like kind of a drag that we keep running back Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway. In other ways, is this feud one we'll be talking about decades from now? And in round number three, Lauren Murphy is out, Donald Cerrone is in, and holy shit, Robbie Lawler is on this card. There is a lot of other stuff to talk about in and around UFC 276, all that, plus are you fucking kidding me, and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Ben, like I said, I think one of the things that we can definitely expect from this weekend's 10-year anniversary meetup down there in Vegas is that it will be sweaty. Yep. It's going to be a sweaty, hot affair. You will want to make sure you got your Fulton and Rourke deodorant. You will want to make sure you got your solid Fulton and Rourke colognes ready to go. Uh, Some of the representatives of Fulton and Rourke are going to be there with us at the meetup. We can get their personal grooming ideas straight from them face to face while we're down there. Fulton and Rourke has been a sponsor of the co-main event podcast almost longer than anyone else. We like to say 
Go out there and support the people who support the show. One of those would definitely be Fulton and Rourke. There's tons of cool stuff going on at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty. That's all one word, if you nasty, over at FultonandRourke.com. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Streetwalker Ryan. Okay. Who writes, really hopeful that the UFC doesn't hold that loss against Armin Sarukian, considering he won four rounds. Would love to see Gamrot, though, face Dariush next and Armand versus Tony Ferguson. Do you have thoughts? Of course, here we're talking about, Ben, uh, last weekend's fight night main event down there at the Apex in Las Vegas, where you had Mateusz Gamrot emerge with a... Uh, questionable unanimous decision win 48 47s across the board over Armand Sarukian. Uh, you know, on this show and other shows that we do, the judging criteria has been a constant topic of conversation sport wide, really, over the last several weeks and months. Just when I thought I had it figured out, just when I was like, okay, I know what the current criteria are. I know how we're scoring these fights. They're going to run Armand Sarukian versus Mateusz Gamrot at me. And in the wake of this thing, I have no idea what the judges were scoring yeah. on this. Because honestly, I watched this thing. And if you score it by the criteria that we're supposed to be scoring fights by, I had Armand Sarukian with a clean sweep. 5-0. He, he won all these damn rounds. Some of them, the last three rounds in this thing are very close. Rounds yeah. three, four, and five are all very, very close. But if we're judging this thing according to damage and how we're supposed to be judging it, man, I honestly thought Sarukian won all three of those damn rounds. Yeah. I, I really was trying hard to see what the judges might have been looking at here. Because the first three rounds, I thought... Uh, you know, they're close rounds, but in terms of who's actually doing any damage there, it's Sarukian. Yeah. And uh, Gamrot has, I, I want to say it's the fourth round that he had his best round in. And But even that, the the basis for calling it his best round was control time, essentially. And that's the conversation that we've been having. You're right, that we've been just been talking about a takedown where you don't do anything except hold on to somebody doesn't really count for much. And granted, it's not like this was a blowout in either direction. It is a close, good fight. And yeah. you could tell from round one that, man, these guys are very evenly matched. And both guys, like, they were getting into some awesome scrambles there, just where you'd think somebody has established a dominant position. The other guy is just like, nope, I'm not going to stop moving until I'm happier with where I end up. And it was crazy. And to for them to be able to keep up that kind of pace for five rounds was incredible. But you're right. When you look at who is actually doing the most damage, it seemed consistently like it was Armand Sarukian. Yeah. And I just I don't understand what they're looking at there. And especially you'd think a five-round fight would give you more opportunities to kind of make that uh, – to delineate – who is doing the stuff and who is just, you know, maybe getting a takedown here or there, but not doing much with it. And especially, I, I was even wondering at the commentary at some of it, because late in the fifth round where they're going, oh, this is a close round. Maybe, he's, and, you know, Gamrot gets a takedown for a couple seconds, never even is able to attempt a strike because he's trying so hard to hold Sarukian down. And Sarukian gets back up, manages to sprawl out and ends around punching him in the ribs. And so, and you're going like, 
I don't. I thought that that was what we had all sort of agreed on and established, and sort of tried to put our old ways of thinking to bed on that. Was yeah. that just getting very briefly a takedown in the last thirty seconds of a round does not win it for you anymore. Like yeah. that. That used to be a way that fighters. Either the judges convinced them of that or they convinced the judges of that. But it seemed like we had finally moved past that. And I, if it, if that's not what the judges were trying to use to, to justify this score, I can't see what it would have been. Yeah, it is frustrating to watch the UFC commentary at times. And, and this is a uh, commentating threesome that I like a lot. You know, I, I like Michael Bisping and I like Paul Felder individually as commentators. And I like the way that they work together. But it is frustrating to watch them call the fight like this, where even before that last round and the final takedown, where they're talking about how it could be decisive when, according to the letter of the law, it's not supposed to be. Throughout this fight, they were updating us on the takedown totals for uh, Mateusz Gamrot as if that was going to be decisive in some way when we're not supposed to be scoring those anymore, man. And it hurts my heart a little bit to say that because, you know, I love the grappling in mixed martial arts, but like... You, we're not supposed to be scoring number of takedowns, especially when they don't lead to anything else resembling damage. And I guess the caveat here is that if you think the striking was exactly even, then you can check down on the list of criteria and then you can start talking about grappling and effective control and things like that. Now, I don't even know if Mateusz Gamrod had a lot of effective control in this fight. Because like you said, it seemed like he couldn't really keep Sarukian down. And the one time he did get him down and get on his back, which I think was at the end of round three, he didn't really threaten him with a submission, didn't get close to anything like that. So I'm kind of at a loss to figure out what the judges were scoring here. You talk about round four being Gamrod's most effective uh, offensive round, but that was also the round where Armin Sarukian tagged him with that spinning back fist that caused Gamrot to fall down, whether or not it was more momentum or a slip than it was an actual uh, dropping with the with the shot is probably up for debate. But like that was one of the most obvious and uh, impactful strikes of the entire fight. So like, yeah. I don't even know you can give that round to Gamrot. So and Sarukian uh, had a few of those. He had, he had yeah, he, did. he lands That's, a straight right hand that, that clearly wobbles him. He's kicking him to the body. All over, you know, he had... Any of those moments where you went, okay, somebody has clearly been affected by a strike that's landed here, uh, with the exception of maybe one exchange, it was Sarukian every time. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, the thing that I don't want to get lost in the wash here as we discuss this uh, kind of head-scratching decision is that this was a damn good fight. And yeah. I think that uh, Armand Sarukian and Mateusz Gamrot came into this fight ranked 11th and 12th, respectively, in the lightweight division. But I think, you know, fast forward a, a year or two, you might be watching two of the best in the world do it against each other in this fight. Like, what these these are top five talents seemingly to me and would be far better recognized if they fought in a less competitive division than this lightweight shark tank that we're always talking about. But this was a, this was a damn good fight. I don't think Armand Sarukian has anything to hang his head over. Uh, it was a close fight, a, an action packed fight. And I think, you know, we might get into a situation where these two guys are, are doing it again somewhere down the road because I think they're both that good. Sarukian is only 25 years old. Gamrot is a pretty young man in his own right. And so uh, they got a lot of bright future ahead of them. This is just one where I looked at and like considering how much, how much we've all been talking about the judging criteria yeah. and trying to get it straight. This is one where I looked at and I was just like, are we wasting our time? 
Are we wasting our time trying to figure out the criteria? Because you watch this fight and it doesn't even seem like that's what the judges were scoring at all. Yeah. Has everybody been having and listening to this conversation except for the MMA judges? Well, and uh, Bisping is talking about on the broadcast how they just had a seminar, a judging criteria seminar that they all sat through. And then you listen to to the commentary and it's like, did, did you though? Did you have a seminar? Anyway, next uh, question this week comes to us from Mr. Burrito Bowl, who writes, Gagard Musasi went out and lost his Bellator middleweight strap to checks notes Johnny Eblen. Eblem? Eblen. Okay. Uh, this Is this 11-0 American wrestler guy actually amazing, like a modern-day Chris Weidman? Or is old sleepy hair, meaning uh, Gagard yeah. Musasi, okay. finally succumbing to Father Time uh, discourse, please? Uh you know, we on the Friday Power Hour had made light a little bit of Gagard Musasi dispatching these young fellas over there in Bellator who come in ranked highly in the Bellator rankings, but owning far less experience than Gagard Musasi himself. Uh, Johnny Eblen kind of made fools out of us during this Bellator event because he went out there and just about won every damn minute of a 25-minute fight against Gegard Musasi. Now, the young vagabond, old sleepy hair, had a few moments in this thing, but it was mostly a clean sweep for yeah. Johnny Eblen, who hurt Gegard Musasi early in this fight with a punching combination and then uh, looked like the textbook American wrestler who also has advanced his striking to a, a professional level because he was dominant in all facets of, the, facets of this thing. And if you didn't know the name before, you better learn it now. Johnny Eblen is out here as the new Bellator middleweight champion after an extremely, extremely impressive performance over Gegard Musasi. The human cheat code. I still, that one might take some time to grow on me. I'll yeah. be honest with you. But, yeah. you know, as for whether this was uh, Johnny Eblen being awesome or Gegard Mousasi getting old, I could see maybe a little of both. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's hard for me to tell exactly how much that getting rocked early on took out of Gegard Mousasi. Because he took that right hand that put him down. And I'll tell you what, he got hit solidly. The kind of punch where he went down off that one and you wondered for a second, is that about, is that going to be it? And yeah. he came up like he was spring loaded and got a takedown. And it was just, that was just autopilot. That's just experience, veteran savvy autopilot, just going right to defensive takedown mode and buying himself some time to get back in the fight. But it, I couldn't tell if maybe he just never fully recovered from that enough to get back in the fight. But also, you got to give Johnny Eblen credit because he just outworked him constantly just throughout this fight just was he just, you you could see the exuberance of youth and maybe that's one of the things that if you come in 11 and 0 you you know you haven't faced anybody except for like Cullen Huckbody and stuff like that and this other guy has been through 70 goddamn fights over a couple different decades uh he he has used up some of his exuberance doing this thing and it yeah. showed it just seemed like Gegard Mousasi just did not have that same quickness and energy and and Eblen was one step ahead of him and was just staying busy staying on him never giving him a second to recover and and get back in it um I I mean inevitably it had to get to a point right where you show up one night and you're too old or you show up one night and you're too old for this particular guy I mean I'm still I wouldn't write off Gegard Mousasi or anything but uh, it did look like he just he didn't have 
what he needed in that fight. And he just, he couldn't really catch up for the entirety of it. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I had not comprehended or fully thought about in my mind brain when we recorded on Friday is that this was essentially back-to-back fight camps for the American top team preparing an opponent for Gegard Mousasi, because Mousasi's previous opponent, Austin Vandeford, is also an ATT guy. Then you got Johnny Eblen coming in to have this fight, which is a lot of study time, you got to say, for the for the masterminds down there at ATT getting ready for Gegard Mousasi. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that that's why Johnny Eblen was able to go out there and beat him, but you know, you give Mike Brown this much study time on a singular opponent, he's probably got the book on Gegard Musasi. So I don't want to take anything away from Eblen, who looked very dominant in this fight, impressive as all get out, as I said. Uh, and the American top team coaches, I'm sure, had him very well prepared and very well scouted for what Musasi was going to bring to the table. And like you said, you can't really factor in how much the exchanges in that first round took out of Musasi or how much that affected him for the final 20 minutes of this thing, because he did get clocked and dropped uh, in that first round. But this was a little bit of one where you don't want to succumb to the uh, to the cliche that we talk about all the time, where you say in this sport, you get old in one night, you just show up one night and you look old. But it did seem like Johnny Eblen was faster. It did seem like he was quicker. It seemed like he was able to impose his his better rounded skills on Musasi in this fight. Uh, and he seems like a halfway exciting guy for Bellator to have as champion. And again, return to the question that we ask every time Bellator has one of these homegrown champions, and that is what they're going to be able to do with them. And so that's that's what remains to be seen here about new middleweight champion Johnny Eblen is whether or not Bellator can make the wider mixed martial arts world, which is so uh, uh, focused, laser focused on the UFC at all times. Can they make people take note of this new champion, Johnny Eblen? And find him interesting people to fight. That's that's the other million dollar question. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, who writes, Carla Esparza recently told MMA Junkie that she's injured and has no interest in rushing into a title defense due to the lack of offensive output in her fight against Rose Namajunas and her less than exciting fighting style. How should we feel about all this? I wouldn't want to fight injured either, but after that perform- performance against Namajunas, I find myself asking, how in the world did she get injured? And is this a ploy to hold on to the title as long as possible? With that being said, my question is, how much should a champion defend their title and would you support something like a title defense deadline in MMA to keep champions active? Well, I understand the urge to look at that fight and say, but what did you do, though, that could have injured you? Because yeah. nobody did much of anything. But she did do a full training camp for that fight. Very easily could have gotten injured in that fought anyway because she knew, hey, if I pull out of this title shot that the UFC didn't really want to give me in the first place. It's not like they're going to be begging me to get healthy again so that they can give it back to me. They'll probably just be mad at me for pulling out. So even if I'm hurt, I got to go ahead and fight. And maybe that could be one of the reasons why you didn't see more output is because she was fighting hurt and trying to do the best she could. But now she's got the belt. And I would urge Carlos Barza not to overestimate the amount of leverage you think you have just because you're UFC champion. We've seen how that goes even for champions who the fans are more excited about and seem to have more of a uh, a mandate, if you will, to be champion and who the UFC is more excited about. And they will still step right over you and pull an interim title out of the closet. 
it can happen. They and they will go ahead and strip you of the title if they really feels like you're being uncooperative. So don't think that you can just call your shots indefinitely. However, this is as close to the driver's seat as you're going to get as Carla Esparza. And if you feel like, hey, they're itching to get this belt off of me and onto Zhang Li again, and you're not going to be wrong about that. They probably are. But you're going, look, if I can buy myself two or three extra months to make sure that I am closer to 100% when I get in there and defend the title and give myself a better chance, I'm going to do it. I can't blame you for that. The problem with trying to come up with like a deadline for champions is that we know we have seen over the years shit doesn't work the same for everybody in the UFC some some fighters get a little more rope than others some champions get a little more rope depends how they feel about you not only about your drawing power but about if you seem like you could be a uh, a labor issue lightning rod that they don't want to see gain any sort of momentum Trying to, it's the same reason like when we talk about does the UFC have a, a code of conduct policy and their code of conduct is basically like, mm, did you piss us off more than you are valuable to us? Like they don't want to come up with some kind of standard that they have to apply across the board. That just, that's never been how they want to do things at all. So we, it's easy for us to say like, oh, you should defend it twice a year, at least every six months, something like that. But some people are going to get a longer a longer lead time than that if they need it. And yeah. I, I don't know what point there is in us saying, like, here's how often we'd like to see it. I mean, I think if you can, if you're healthy enough to defend it twice a year, I think that's good. That's a good title rate. But I also, I'm not going to blame anybody who you work all your career to get that title. That's when you finally have some chance at some real money for these fights uh, by getting a cut of the pay-per-views. It's when you finally feel like you're in a position to call at least some of the shots you get there, I don't think you should allow yourself to be pressured into putting that title up for grabs when you know you're not completely healthy or you know you're not uh, ready. If, if a year or something goes by, then sure, they, they got to do something. But you know, especially if you're in Carlos Esparza's position, you lose that belt, they're probably not going to let you very easily get into a position to get it back again. Yeah. In general, I typically come down on the fighter side of things in most of these these issues about how often you should fight and how often you should defend your title and stuff like that. And I understand the impulse to look at Carla Esparza here and and cast aspersions. Uh, but the thing about like a, a a fighting a fight a championship title defense deadline or anything like that, uh, I think the UFC kind of has a de facto one of those as it is, and it's the schedule right now, especially now that we've kind of settled down into this. Uh, set routine where it kind of feels like the UFC has a formula for what it wants to put out there on pay-per-view now that it's getting uh, these guaranteed rights payments from ESPN that we talk about a lot that take a lot of the pressure off how you stack the pay-per-view cards. Now, some of the cards like this weekend's card, uh, UFC 276, still come out to be pretty stacked. But one of the things that it seems like the UFC has settled on is to have two title defenses on every pay-per-view card uh, regardless of of which titles and who they are and what the rest of the supporting card looks like, and this this weekend obviously you got that in uh, the men's featherweight title and the middleweight title. But as long as you're going to have two title fights on every pay per view and you're doing twelve pay per views a year, uh, your your champions are going to have to remain pretty active. And we have already found out 
just with the Francis Ngannou situation, how if if the UFC needs a title on the line for one of those pay-per-views and the champion is not quite ready to come back and fight again, even if he is only asking for an additional month, as Francis Ngannou was, uh, they'll make an interim one. And yeah. and the fact that they did that so quickly to Ngannou tells you that they'll do it to anybody. They'll do it to Carlos Barza. They'll do it to Davis and Figueredo. They'll do it to anyone that they have to do it to uh, to keep that content wheel turning. And so as long as you're doing that with the pay-per-views, I think you're going to see most of the UFC champions remain active if they are, in fact, physically capable of it. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about, even though we didn't get a specific question about it before we move on to round number one here, is your co-main event from this past weekend's fight night, uh, where Shavkat Rachmanov really uh, looked impressive against yeah. Neil Magny. And this is one that we talked about a lot on Friday during the power hour, as well as this kind of being the, uh, the show me fight, if you will, for Shav- Shavkat Rachmanov, a guy that we think has a lot of potential, a guy who has looked very impressive in all of his fights leading up to this Neil Magny fight, but who experienced a step up in competition here against Neil Magny and a guy in Magny who really is kind of, and I mean this in the most complimentary possible way, the gatekeeper to the, the welterweight elite. You don't beat Neil Magny unless you are very, very good. And Shavkat Rachmanov uh, made it look pretty easy and beat Neil Magny again, kind of in all facets. And uh, one of the things that struck me here about Rachmanov was the poise that he showed. He just never looked uncomfortable. He never looked like he was in a hurry. He never looked like he was going to make a mistake. He just looked methodical and uh, technically sound and able to just get these dominant positions keep them and then just kind of like i said methodically do damage not really punching hard enough to to cause a huge knockout but at the same time just landing these thudding shots in the ground and pound against neil magny and then to snatch up what i believe was an arm in guillotine yeah to end this thing in the second round you gotta have a pretty stinking good arm in guillotine to get neil magny to tap out to it when he's got an arm in there man so uh shavkat rachmanov approves to, improves to 16 and 0 and looks looks every bit as good as as good as advertised man it's like i don't know what you say about this guy that's not positive at this point i mean you'll recall that when we talked about it uh place on our bets on Friday, I believe, didn't you have some some action down on Neil Magny there? That would be what what is known in the uh, among us professional gamblers as a flyer. Okay, Took and a flyer position bet on Neil Magny. I believe I said when I placed it, I didn't expect him to win, but when you're getting three to one comeback on underdog Neil Magny, you might as well take a flyer. Yeah, and I had Rockmanoff because as as I said then, and I repeat now, that boy good. That boy, good. I mean, he just came out there and controlled that thing right away. He made Neil Magny look like he doesn't know how to grapple. You know, like you could, and you could hear the like the aspirational tone of Neil Magny's corner as yeah. we got into the second round, where they're like, Neil, try to frame, try to connect your elbow and your knee, Neil, try to try to get his arm off your head. Like everything was, see if you can do one thing, see if you can build the the foundation of a defense. And that's all that he was able to do there for so long was just defend and survive. And you're right, the the, the calm with which Rockman was just sort of methodically taking him apart and looking for openings there. And as he said afterwards, knowing Neil Magny is a good fighter, not rushing anything. And man, I mean, that guy looks like he is going to be a fucking problem for a whole lot of people at that division. 
Yes, he does. And uh, it's an interesting situation now down there at 170 pounds. I don't think there's a whole lot of people calling up the matchmakers after that and being like, give me Rockmanoff. Like that's, you know how sometimes yeah, well, we the those... guy who does that just did it yeah. and he got tooled up. So yeah, you probably, probably not going to see that from too many other people. You know how we hear that shit all the time. Oh, nobody wants to fight this guy or something. You know, after this one, there's not, there's not like a whole, the phone's not blowing up. Be like, how soon can you give me Rockmanoff? Nope. Nope. Not happening. Well, yeah. The, uh, the thing that I was going to say here is that you have now, an interesting situation at 170 pounds where arguably two of the best prospects in the entire sport are both kind of creeping on a come up in terms of becoming top contenders in that division. Cause you've got Kamzat Shemaev and you've got Shavkat Rachmanov there. So, uh, if I'm the champion in that, in that weight class, I'm, I don't know that I'm getting a lot of sleep. Yes. <laughs> don't know if it's, don't know if I'm getting a lot of sleep there. In any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, right now, Jared Cannonier is going off as a plus 300 underdog to Israel Adesanya over at the DraftKings Sportsbook. Does that seem about right to you? Let's see. Three to one underdog probably won't win. Big upside if he does win. Maybe you could talk yourself into thinking Israel Adesanya is looking past him. Yeah, no, that sounds right. I did the math. Well, no matter what the odds are, with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC, new customers can bet $5 on any fighter to win this weekend at UFC 276 and get $100 in free bets, win or lose. Whether you like Adesanya to keep it rolling or Cannoneer to pull the huge upset, you win no matter what. Plus, with DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can turn another small bet into a big payday. For UFC 276, you can place a Same Game Parlay, and if it hits, you'll win double. Ben, tell them how it works. You download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code COMAINEVENT, all one word. Bet $5 on any UFC 276 fighter to win and get $100 in free bets no matter what. That's code COMAINEVENT. This Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See our show notes for details. Well, we haven't seen anybody beat Israel Adesanya at middleweight up to this point. His lone loss, as everyone knows, Jan Blahovich back at UFC 259 last March when Adesanya tried to venture up to light heavyweight to take on the champion there. That did not work out for him. Since then, he has defended the middleweight title two times successfully with a unanimous decision win over Marvin Vittori at UFC 263 and then a hard-fought but clear-cut unanimous decision win again against Robert Whitaker at UFC 271. So we have not found the man's equal at 185 pounds and like i said at the beginning of the show there's a part or an aspect of this cannoneer matchup 
that kind of feels like, all right, well, he's beat all of the top contenders. In some ways, he's cleaned out a lot of the division here. And now now we're scrounging around for whoever's got a win streak. And in this case, that's Jared Cannonier. Is that how you feel about this? Or is Cannonier more dangerous than people are giving him credit for? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that he's not a dangerous guy because he keeps he's beat some really good people. He's got power. He, he's got a, a whole lot of stuff that he can threaten you with. And yet, when you're trying to think about how this actual matchup plays out, uh, it is a little bit tough to see what his path to victory would look like. Because the Jan Blahovich fight, I think, made us think, okay, here's a way that Israel Adesanya could be beaten if you're big enough, basically. If you're big enough and have the right skills and you could just sort of... Uh, you can negate a lot of his natural physical advantages. And yet Jared Cannonier doesn't necessarily seem like he does have those physical tools to be able to do that. Like he's not that big a guy for middleweight and he's, he's around the size of Robert Whitaker. And we saw that that was one of the things that Robert Whitaker struggled with was that size and reach and height difference. You got to get close enough to Israel Adesanya. If you can take him down, you got to be able to, to keep him there long enough to do something. And when you have to stay standing with him, you got to find a way to not be standing at the end of his range where you can't reach the guy. I'm not sure I know how Jared Cannonier is going to solve that problem. But, I mean, he is one of those dudes where if he hits you once, then you could have some problems. The question is, Israel Asana is pretty good at not get, taking those hits. And it's not like he's exactly fragile when he does have to take them. Uh, you mentioned Jared Cannonier's size, and he is he is not a tall guy for this division. He's listed at six foot even. And uh, he has a 77 and a half inch reach. So he's going to be giving up both height and reach to the champion Israel Adesanya, which in general is not a recipe for success against that man. However, like you're also talking about a former heavyweight here in Jared Cannonier, a guy who fought at heavyweight, fought at light heavyweight, eventually worked his way down to 185 pounds. So in terms of like girth and strength, I think he's probably more physically imposing than Robert Whitaker, and I think he's probably going to have uh, you know some more physical strength in there than than Bobby Knuckles has. So I guess if I was going to make my case for Cannonier, it's number one he's got he does have thunder in his hands. If he is able to connect on something, it could hurt, and, and if he is able to land clean on Israel Adesanya, he could do some damage. So I think he's got the proverbial puncher's chance in this fight. But like I said at the top of the round, the only thing we've really seen Israel Adesanya struggle with thus far in his career was, as you said, Jan Blahovich, the bigger guy who focused mostly on takedowns and control in that fight. I think Jared Cannonier could have something resembling the size and strength to put Adesanya on his back. And the question is whether or not he would be able to keep him there for five rounds and or do something fight ending if he gets in that position to, to craft a stoppage sooner than that which uh, seems like a, a long shot to me, but I don't think I would totally write him off. I think that like his ability to maybe land that one single punch and or get those takedowns and try to do something against Israel Adesanya gives him a glimmer, a glimmer of a shot. Like I, I you know, I think about the, the, the things I talked about about this fight seeming like we were scrounging around for opponents. Like yeah. Israel Adesanya had already cleaned out the division. And I feel like just because I am superstitious that that situation alone, I feels like feel like makes it kind of a dangerous fight for Israel Adesanya. Yeah. I mean, if you are trying to talk yourself into it, 
one of the things that you could say is this is the kind of fight that a dominant UFC champion would fuck around and lose. Because it does feel like we're doing this one out of a lack of better ideas. We He's beat everybody else. Okay, Jared Cannonier has managed to hang around uh, at or near the top of the middle eight division long enough. Sure, let him have his turn. And already you even hear Israel Adesanya where he's talking about uh, Alex Piera. Like, okay, hey, let's run that one back in MMA and I'll show him that it's way different than kickboxing. And you could maybe tell yourself, okay, he's looking past him. Even yeah. Israel Adesanya cannot get that hyped for a Jared Cannonier fight. It just feels like sort of a placeholder. The next next business we got to do at 185 pounds. But it's not necessarily like you're picturing him waking up like Rocky with a little picture of Jared Cannonier at the bottom of the mirror every day. A drive to go out there and beat this guy more than anybody else. Doesn't feel like that kind of a fight. And so maybe if you are the superstitious type, you'd be like, "Mm, that's when the MMA gods like to hit somebody with a thunderbolt right in their teeth. But other than that, I don't know if that, that's not exactly logic. That's, that's more like just saying like, well, because he shouldn't lose, that's why he'll lose. You know what I mean? Sometimes it be like that. Sometimes it Uh, do be like that. (laughs) Jared Cannonier, five and one in his last six. Uh, four of those are KO or TKO stoppages. He's beat David Branch, Anderson Silva, Jack Hermanson, Kelvin Gastelum, and Derek Brunson leading up to this title defense. The lone loss, however, not that we want to engage in MMA math, but UFC 254 unanimous decision loss to Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whitaker, who now has lost multiple times to Israel Adesanya. So make of that what you will. It sounds to me like despite the fact that Jared Cannonier is going to come in here with the powers of stones of the earth behind mm-hmm. him that uh that you're you're playing the safe money here that you like to you're the you, you're 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 thinking you're going to wake up on Sunday morning and Israel Adesanya is still the UFC middleweight champion. I just I can't quite get myself there to picture a scenario in which Jared Cannonier gets that belt strapped around his waist. I I'm trying I'm open to other people. You know, uh, some of the people who get really in-depth on their analysis and breakdowns pre-fight, I'll I'll be interested to hear if they can talk me into it right now. Can't quite talk myself into it. Yeah. I mean, it's a safe bet. It's hard to bet against Israel Adesanya at 185 pounds right now. He's just been too good. All right. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what is your... Are you fucking kidding me this week? So we talked a little bit last week about this Joe Pesci-ass dude, Danny Sabatello, over there in Bellator. Uh, He went out there. He, Chad, I'm just going to read you from this MMA fighting story by our dude, Stephen Morocco. Uh, Sabatello was fined $5,000 by the Mohegan Tribe Department of Athletic Regulation for abusive language at this past Friday's event. MMA fighting has learned that fine was subtracted from his disclosed pay from his fight with Leandro Higo, whom he beat via unanimous decision. Um, the, the Mohegan Tribe Athletic Regulation President Mike Mazzulli cited Rule 21 of the MMA Unified Rules, which prohibits, quote, use of abusive language in the fighting area. Are you fucking kidding me? We're going to be out here, stripped to the waist, trying to punch holes in each other's faces, trying to concuss one another, break limbs, all this stuff, and you are going to pull up some rule about abusive language in the fighting area and take some of his money? That is just stealing. 
and it's the dumbest shit I can imagine in this of all sports. This sport <laughs> is a goddamn traveling carnival in all its iterations, and you're going to be like, but no abusive language, please. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. You know, uh, generally in life, the fighting area is one of the only places where I do want to hear abusive language. I feel like uh, you should not use abusive language in most other areas, most other walks of life. But when you're in the fighting area, Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. Bring your abusive language to the fighting area and check it at the door when you're anywhere else. That's just me, though. The fighting area is the place for abusive language. Quote from Sabatello, uh, um, I was told if I swore in my post-fight interview, I might get fined. So it's a good thing I don't give a fuck. I just beat an absolute animal. Not one of you is going to do shit. If you want to do something, come in here right now and do something. It also notes uh, that uh, Raytheon Stotts also dropped an F-bomb in criticizing the wrestling heavy fight, but did not receive a fine. Hmm. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Bellator actually has something cool on its hands with Danny Sabatello versus Rufion Stotts. I have to say, like those guys, as long as they can afford it, are going to be able to work some magic in the lead up to their fight because there's going to be a lot of abusive language in the fighting area leading up to that <laughs> to that particular bout. I'm just saying, you know what? If if Scotty Cox wants to help out his image in the the public square here, go ahead and say that you will reimburse. Danny Sabatello for his $5,000 fine. Make it, make it yeah. known. You know what? Don't worry, Danny. We got you on this one. We support your right to use abusive language in the fighting area. In the fighting area with your Jersey Shore looking ass. <laughs> uh, this is like, this is the Mohegan Sun equivalent of just having a swear jar, right? Where if you swear, you got to <laughs> put a dollar in the jar. It's exactly sort of the what it thing is. Here. It's exactly what it is. All right, well, Ben, I want to read you this headline over there at uh, Bloody Elbow from a Kareem Zidane story. Uh, Dagestani wrestling coach heroically rescues six people from a burning car. Now, this story is exactly what you think it would be. Dagestani wrestling coach is on his way to visit friends when he's he sees a Mercedes rear end a taxi at high speed, and then it kind of flies off the road, runs into a wall, and it bursts into flames. And so the Dagestani wrestling coach, like you would, runs over and tries to start rescuing people from this uh, burning car. I just I want to call your attention to this one paragraph in the story which okay. is it just tickles me according to aliyev that's the the guy's name that's the dagestani wrestling coach he is a former winner of the russian freestyle wrestling championships by the way and the head coach of the dagestan youth wrestling team according to aliyev law enforcement officers that arrived on scene attempted to stop him from providing assistance but he still managed to break the car's window and help people out of the wreck with the help of other bystanders you fucking kidding me? There is no better person to have around when you are on the verge of burning to death in a car than a motivated Dagestani wrestling coach who wants to save you. Yeah. You could give me you could give me a a multiple choice lineup of people who do you want to save you from a burning car? And question 1 is are any of you a Dagestani wrestling coach? And if anyone says yes, that's the guy. That's the guy I want. Come try to save me. And by the way, beat up a few cops on the way. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I mean, woe be unto a cop who tries to stop this Dagestani. You're just going to you're going to catch a whizzer and go flying. 
Uh, you, yeah. you might get ankle picked or something uh, trying to get between him and the burning car. You're, you're right. For me, the list goes Batman and then <laughs> okay. Dagestani wrestling coach. Oh, wow. That's hot take. Hot take listing Batman above Dagestani wrestling coach. He's got a pretty good track record is all I'm saying. That's true. That's true. I'm still going to lean to Dagestani Youth Wrestling Coach. I got to say, either way, you're probably getting out of that car. And well, and you're also going to catch a talking to afterwards where he says, brother, you must slow down. You know this. <laughs> Driving too fast, brother. All right. That is going to do it for Are You Fucking Kidding Me and round number one. We'll be right back after this with round number two. Well, Chad, here we go again, again. These two fellas, let's say they're going to be awful familiar with each other. You got your champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, who is now 2-0 against Max Holloway, former champion. And yet, we're doing it again, and damned if it just doesn't seem like we could be an even, in an even stickier mess if Max Holloway were to go in there and win one. Because then what the hell do you do? Are we looking at a World Series kind of event here? As, as Alexander Volkanovsky has said in the past, are we just going to keep doing it until Max Holloway wins one? And yet, Max Holloway continues being one of the best fighters in the division, so you look around and you go, mm, who else? It's hard to deny Max Holloway a title shot here. I mean, one thing I wonder here, and I want to start off the conversation by asking you this. We, these were close fights. We saw a lot of adjustments back and forth uh, between... And in the actual fights themselves, do you think that you reach a point where you know so much about each other that it actually gets in your head? Where you're thinking, all right, here's what I know all the stuff that this guy can do. He knows all the stuff I can do. Or do you just sort of at some point in the third goddamn meeting here just sort of say, fuck it and go in there and figure, you know what? We each know what we got. Let's lay the yeah. cards on the table and see how it comes out. I mean, you got to be getting there, right? With these guys, we got 10 rounds between them, 50 minutes of fight time. And it's a really unusual situation, obviously, where you get yourself into a trilogy fight situation where one guy has won both of the first two fights. And your heart, I think, should go out a little bit to Alexander Volkanovsky here for, uh, you know, in a flashback to the Daniel Cormier, John Jones situation, has one kid that's always in his bracket. At yeah. the wrestling tournament that you got to be like, oh, man, everywhere I go, I got my Subway sandwich and I walk into the gym and I'm checking out the bracket. Who's in my bra? Oh, Max Holloway. I, I got to go with Max Holloway again. That's kind of how Alexander Volkanovsky must feel at this point. And yet. Put my put my ear to the ground. I don't hear a lot of complaints because Max Holloway really is that damn good. I don't know that we can sit here and say he doesn't deserve it. So it's it's uh. It's an unusual, but at the same time, kind of interesting situation. And it does start to get into the to the question of what what do we do if Max Holloway wins one of these things in here? Then we do in a best of seven, pretty much. Uh, but you might get yourself into sort of like a legendary MMA feud territory then. It could be, you know, we could be treading in new, new directions if we got to do this thing over and over and over again. Uh I doubt that either one of these guys is really going to get too deep in their heads about it, though, right? Like, if you're Volkanovsky, even though things have been trending a little bit toward 
Max Holloway because you beat him by unanimous decision the first time, then you beat him by split decision. You don't like the way the the needle is moving in this in this series, but at the same time, you're Volko, man. You're the best in the world. You got to like your chances to beat this guy for a third time. And if you're Max Holloway, you know what you do. I don't expect either of these guys to to get too deep in the you know, retiring themselves in knots psychologically. I think they both, they know what they do. They know what each other does. And and we're going to wind them up and put them in the ring and see what happens out there. Yeah. I mean, I was interested in how, I mean, they're both close fights. And so uh, to say like, okay, it looks like they were like narrowing. I mean, they, they were either one. You could have called a, a split decision, honestly, uh, depending on what judges you got there that night. But it did seem like uh, Max Holloway started that second fight being like, okay, I learned some things from how that first one went, and we're not doing that again, and was looking really good early on. And one of the things that I think is uh, consistent and really impressive about Alexander Volkanovsky and why he's the best fighter in the division right now is that he was able to adjust right away to that stuff, to see, like, okay, so here's what he wants to do. Here's how he thinks he's figured it out. Uh, let me come up with an answer to his answer. And he did. And like, that's what I think makes a third fight interesting. Because I, I remember doing a story, uh, I think, for the third Stipe DC fight and talking to coaches on both sides about how do you even go into the third fight after. And, and they all kind of said something along the lines of like, okay, the rematch, you think we learned some things from the first time that we got in there with the guy. The trilogy, you kind of think, the thing you don't want to do is try to change too much. That was something I heard, too. I talked to Gray Maynard about his trilogy with Frankie Edgar, and he was like, I fucked up by trying to change too much stuff going into that third one. And he just went into the third one thinking, um, I know what we both got, and I'm going to hope for the best here. And, he, and it worked out for him, and it didn't work out for me. And... I, I could see, though, with both these guys, because if you're Volkanovsky, you got to be like, okay, he had something that he thought he had figured out for the second one. What does he think he's figured out this time? And and I wonder if that leads to you showing up to the fight just being like, all right, let's see. Let's see what it is. What what does he think is going to be the difference maker this time? Or do you just go out there and do your regular Alexander Volkanovsky stuff? You know, it, it's it gets tricky. And especially because, you know, they had those back-to-back fights and then they both went off and fought other people. And now they're coming back and a little bit of time has passed. And you're wondering like, okay, are we the same people that we were last yeah. time we met? I mean, it is a strategic puzzle from one fight to the next fight to the next fight, right? Trying to figure out which looks to give and, and which, which philosophies to, to, to go for and which, which things will be successful. Uh, I mean, just in psychologically for Alexander Volkanovsky, I think the big hurdle would be if you lost one of these, right? Cause he's already said, like you mentioned, are they going to make me fight Max Holloway until he wins one? And the fact is, like, this is mixed martial arts, man. There's a million ways this can go. Max Holloway is going to win one of these. If they keep running yeah. it back, he's good enough. They're both good enough that Max Holloway is going to win one of these. So if that's this one, then what do you do if you're Volkanovsky? Because I don't know that there's any even direction you could go besides doing a fourth fight between these guys. And so I think that's when you get into weird psychological territory is if Alexander Volkanovsky loses one of these things, then you got to come back and have number four. Then what do you do? Then how do you get yourself ready? Then what do you tell yourself in the, in the lead up? And so, uh, you know, like I said before, it's, it's possible that we could start to verge on 
virgin territory here. Places we haven't seen these high-level guys go for four fights, five fights. Don't want to look too far ahead, but God forbid we get a draw or something out of this. Then what <laughs> do you do? You, then you, don't you start talking like that, God damn it. Then you close the division, I think. You hang the, <laughs> turn the sign around. Turn it around from open to close. Turn the lights out. Or at least you put up like a back in 15 minutes kind of thing, you know? Give and us some time. You, yeah. <laughs> Closed for uh, morning. We'll be back 15 minutes. Uh, and then again, like if you're a, an up and coming featherweight contender, you got to kind of be like, all right, guys, finish it up. <laughs> Let's wrap it up here. But My I mean, it's been on the hey, list for a while. Volk got on the mic last time and, was, and told the division to get their shit together. You know, yeah. he told yeah. them, he told them like, look, I guess he, he was kind of looking down the road. Like, okay, I got to do this third one with Max Holloway. Fine. I'll do it. You know, like you guys get your shit together in the meantime. And you know, it's not like we've seen a, a, a lack of fun fights in that division since then. You saw that uh, Josh Emmett, Calvin Cater fight. Uh, you do. You look around and you see some evidence that, of the division getting its shit together and lining up some stuff for the future. Um, it just... There's a part of me that wants Volkanovski to win just so we don't have to deal with this question of like, oh shit, now what? Yeah. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, you know how I start my day? Uh, you hold your hand over an open flame while reciting a monologue to yourself on some Travis Bickle taxi driver shit? Incorrect. Mm. I start my day, every day, by waking up in the morning and drinking AG1 from Athletic Greens before I even have my coffee. I mix it up with the handy shaker they sent me in the mail and I drink it down. It's super healthy, it tastes pretty good, and it's easy and fast to use. Get all the daily vitamins you need in a one-stop shop of dietary goodness. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, whatever you do. AG1 is a small micro-habit with big health benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with uh, convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give away a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. With your first purchase, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash CME. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash CME to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Ben, UFC 276 is a stacked card. It's a little bit of a flashback in many ways to how these pay-per-view cards used to feel back in the day. Uh, we just talked about the two top fights, the the co-main events, Israel Adesanya versus Jared Cannonier and Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway. Also on the main card, Sean Strickland versus Alex Piera, uh, Pedro Munoz versus Sean O'Malley. But you start looking down the card, man, and like I said at the beginning of the show, Robbie Lawler is on this thing, fighting Brian Barbarina. Uh, you got uh, Jim Miller and Cowboy Cerrone now on the uh, on the fight card for this one. Brad Riddell versus Jalen Turner is going to be a good one. Just kind of from top to bottom, 
you got a really solid pay-per-view fight card coming up this weekend. Uh, now, however, I'd like to talk about one of the fights that's not going to happen, and that is Lauren Murphy is out of her fight, scheduled fight against Misha Tate, and we're going to kick the can down the road on this one. They'll be down there doing it at UFC Long Island, I believe. Uh, thoughts on the loss of that one and this overall card? Well, I think that ultimately they made the right decision when they had to. It sounded like some COVID protocol stuff with Lauren Murphy pulled her out of this fight and that maybe uh, there was talk that maybe we'll try to find somebody for else for Misha Tate, keep her on this card, that maybe she wanted to stay on that card. But at this point, if we're trying to find out about Misha Tate's future in this weight class, somebody like Lauren Murphy is an opponent who means something and who can provide a good test for her. And if you get somebody else that you're just throwing in on extremely short notice, uh, you know, a week out from the fight, I don't know if we're going to answer those questions for ourselves the same way that we wanted to. It makes sense to me, hey, especially if, you know, if there's no concern that Lauren Murphy is actually sick and that, you know, she might need longer than that. If you can just push it a couple weeks and everybody be healthy and ready to go, then sure, go ahead, bolster that card with that fight. And, and I'm glad to see him keep that one together. Yeah, and it's, you know, they postponed it to July 16th, so we're not moving it too far down the road here. That'll be on the... Uh UFC on ABC card, I believe, that is going to be headlined uh, by Ortega and Rodriguez. So that's a uh, that's a not a bad fight card to land on in and of itself. What about uh, Cowboy Cerrone? Ben, it's been a uh, a circuitous route to this fight for the Cowboy. We tried to do it with uh, Joe Lazon twice. Uh, we had to cancel the fight once because Cowboy Cerrone got sick. We had to cancel the fight twice because. Uh, Joe Lazan's trick knee acted up in the in the the uh, you know the time between the weigh in and the fights, and so now he lands here against Jim Miller, a rematch somewhat eight nine years in the making here. As Jim Miller was originally scheduled to do the damn thing with Bobby Green, Bobby Green had to pull out. <sighs> Big breath. So now you got Cowboy Cerrone against Jim Miller on this card. I mean, now you do as of Monday. That's true. Uh, you That's still true. got uh, several days to go. So, you know, uh, I like the idea of just saying like, hey, we were doing an old guy fight just for kind of the hell of it. Uh, we tried twice. Seemed like the damn thing was cursed. Let's do a different old guy fight just kind of for the hell of it. All right. Works for me. And also people were talking about, oh, man, hey, they're, they're making Jim Miller fight out his contract, not offering him any new deal, putting him up against Bobby Green, kind of a tough go. Uh, putting him up against Stunts Roney, chance to get a little revenge there against the Cowboy in his later years. Maybe a little bit of a, a better matchup for Jim Miller at this point. Maybe, I mean, hey, if Jim Miller could sail off into free agency at this point, I, I still think maybe not the best idea to tell people to broadcast that the UFC is not going to offer you a contract win or lose because maybe you want to keep those negotiations a little more open than that. But he's riding a two-fight win streak. He beats Cowboy. That's a name. That's a name on the resume. And he'd be winning three straight on his way out the door in the UFC. You know, you might get yourself a pretty decent offer somewhere as Jim Miller at that point. What is the thing that you are looking forward to the most on this card outside of those top two fights that we already talked about? Well, I would say Robbie Lawler versus Brian Barberina, but I know you're going to say Robbie Lawler versus Brian Barberina, aren't you? I mean, that you know, I love a pirate fight, right? Brian Barberina voted most likely to swing on a rope across the open sea and land on the deck of your ship with a, with a dagger in his mouth. That's, that's what you're your doing guy. with Brian Barberina. It kind of feels like UFC matchmakers know 
what's up with Brian Barberina at this point, right? That they're just like looking around being like, let's see what other total savages can Barberina fight. And we'll just, we'll just put him on a, on a, uh, on an absolute savages tour. Cause this is, that's all he's fighting. Yeah, it is. And you know, to sneak Robbie Lawler in here on the prelims, I almost didn't even notice him, you know? Right. Yeah. Couldn't see him standing in there behind Brad Riddell and Jalen Turner. Can I, can I possibly say and admit that I am kind of looking forward to Sean Strickland versus Alex Pierre? That's an interesting matchup, right? They're going yeah. off. Uh, Strickland is minus 105 and Alex Pereira is minus 115. So a slight, slight, slight favorite there for Alex P. Uh, and it kind of, it feels like classic UFC matchmaking, right? Because uh, Shawnee Strickland is out here running his Dexter gimmick uh, where he's acting like a serial killer all the time. And then he gets in the cage and like kind of pitter patters around to these unanimous decisions. And then you got Alex Pierre out here uh, who has the previous uh, meetings with Israel Adesanya in kickboxing has that history. So he kind of shapes up as an interesting guy, at least a champion is talking about him as a potential interesting matchup. Yeah. So with the UFC, no matter who wins this one, you got some kind of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, and it does feel like the UFC heard fan complaints about, okay, Sean Strickland wants to bathe in somebody's blood until he's actually in the cage, and then he wants to jab and move. And they go, okay, let's put you up against somebody who might know how to deal with something like that, even if as an actual MMA experience, he didn't have a ton. Uh, let's see what Sean Strickland's answer for that is going to be. Let's put you in there with somebody who is going to to come at you on the feet and test uh, if you were really about that life. I, I, I kind of like it. I kind of like the thinking there, and I kind of like that it feels like, okay, let's get ourselves an answer on both guys here. Let's find out what we're doing at middleweight, and we're not exactly slow playing the, the Alex Pira stuff anymore. Uh, Pedro Munoz rolls into his fight against Sean O'Malley, believe one in four in his last five. So he certainly has not been all that successful most recently, though. But does he represent a step up in competition for Sean O'Malley, who since the loss to Chito Vera back at UFC 252 has three straight stoppage wins over Thomas Almeida, Chris Motinho and uh, Rulian Pavia? Yeah. Is he is he a step up? Is Pedro Munoz a test here for O'Malley? Yeah, uh to an extent I th I, th I think you kind of got to call it that, but it also seems like um the the Sean O'Malley show at this point I wonder uh if to to what extent it matters if he wins them all. You know? Yeah. Like I yeah. I was amazed really when I went to UFC 264 last summer around this time, you know, and that's the one where he fought Chris Moutinho and it was a late notice sort of replacement kind of thing. And there was a big, big crowd pop for Sean O'Malley coming through there. And I think that he has managed to reach a section of the fans to an extent that, you know, he can win a few, lose one, win a few, lose one. And that, I don't know if it necessarily hurts his popularity all that much. Like, yeah. uh, I, I, he really does. He, he has connected with people uh, more than maybe some of us in the bubble who have maybe got a little tired of the gimmick think that he has. Yeah, it does feel to me like the momentum has slowed a little bit, but maybe that's just my point of view. Maybe I'm not taking it into consideration enough. Uh, and this would be a big, big-ish win for him, I think, to beat Pedro Munoz on the curtain jerker of this 
main pay-per-view card. Uh, the rest of this thing that we didn't talk about here, Uriah Hall against Andre Muniz, Jessica I and Macy Barber, Brad Tavares and DDP, and Jessica Rose Clark against Julia Storolenko. Uh, there's, there's several people on here just feel like big, big fight regulars, right? Like the usual yeah. suspects sort of. It's like, you're not going to be the main event, but if we got if we got a big event going, like we'll give Jessica I a call, right? We'll, we'll call Brad Tavares. It's short commute. For him, we'll see if he wants to show up to uh, T-Mobile to have this event. We'll call Jessica Rose Clark. That seem like people that the UFC is kind of uh, keeps on standby. Let's say for their for their big events. Well, and keep your eye out for my man Jalen Turner, who comes in here on a four fight win streak and uh, apt to pull out a goddamn tarantula at the weigh-ins or some shit like that. That's that's a guy you want to uh, just don't lose track of him in a room. You know? Yeah. Don't want yeah. that guy showing up and then putting a tarantula on your shoulder. No, you do not. All right, let's go ahead and we'll do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, TMZ Sports uh, caught up with Francis Ngannou this week to talk about what's going on with him. He was noncommittal, as he has been, about his future with the UFC. However, he did say he had successful surgery to repair the torn MCL and damaged ACL that he came into the fight. Uh, against Cyril Gaon with at UFC 270. Uh, and he says he might return. He's, he'll be ready for action at the end of the year. So here's the quote I wanted to read. For now, uh, let's wait for the situation to play out and give it, get everything squared up with my contract. Then when I get close to the return, we will see where the landscape is at. So we've been operating in the wake of all of this kind of contentious contract stuff between Francis Ngannou and the UFC, we have been operating under the assumption that Francis Ngannou is going to piece out the game, that he's going to have some other opportunities that he's going to want to go uh, check out. However, he says he's going to be ready in December, which would be one month before we think his UFC contract is going to expire. And then you've also got Dana White out this week, just today, I think, saying on Jim Rome, who, by the way, Dana White loves to go on Jim Rome, loves to go on these mainstream talk radio shows where they know just enough to ask him questions about the sport, but not enough to to challenge him on anything that he says. Not enough to know when he's lying, basically. He said that John Jones is ready to go at heavyweight and that it will either be Francis Ngannou or Stipe Miocic as opponents for John Jones at heavyweight. So I guess I'm just saying... Did we really do all this rigmarole? Did we do all this with Francis Ngannou, all this drama, all this stuff, just to have him come back to the UFC in December to fight somebody? Because it would be a very UFC move to be like, oh, we had this big falling out with Francis Ngannou, but then we talked him into coming back in December to fight John Jones. We're going to do that at the end of the year pay-per-view. That would be very UFC, and it would... Oh, that's the fight I want most of all. And yet, if we did it now in December, it would feel a little bit like a letdown to me. I got to say, I'm just saying. I'm I'm just just saying. saying. I mean, maybe a fight of this caliber, maybe it requires some rigmarole. Have you considered that? I guess we got to do some rigmarole to get there. It would just feel like we did. It would feel like there was a lot of smoke and very little fire if Francis Ngannou came back to the UFC in December, wouldn't it? Well, if he fights, if he ends up fighting John Jones, if we actually get Ngannou versus Jones, the fight that the UFC seemed content to pass on and that we saw as sort of a condemnation of how the UFC's 
pay structure works at this point. You know, it would be like you see one of those kids taking a math test and he's using two, three pieces of scratch paper. And you're going, how the hell is he? What is he writing? Why is it taking all this time for him to come up with an answer? And But then he gets the right answer in the end and you go, well, okay. I mean, it seems like you wasted an awful lot of paper to get there, but you got there. Yeah. You got there. Circuitous was the route we took to get here. I'm just saying. Just saying. Chad, I'm just saying. You know what the most tired-ass gimmick in all of MMA social mediaing is? What's that? It's Dylan Danis. Okay. Particularly, <laughs> it's Dylan Danis out here. This tweet out from him. Uh, I believe they posted this one yesterday. But it's, it's kind of typical fight week shit from him. If Jared Cannonier beats Israel Adesanya, I'll give one person who likes this tweet $5,000, must be following to win. And then he includes at Dylan Danis, again, as if we're not already looking at his goddamn Twitter. He's got to put the handle of his goddamn Twitter in the thing. I'm just saying, it's the replies. It's the replies (laughs) that really make it worth it for me. Because the first one that pops up for me is a guy saying, to those who are participating, don't forget to unfollow when you don't win. Uh, Somebody else chiming in to say, every other week with this shit, just pay for followers, man. Uh, Somebody else saying, has anyone actually ever been sent money by him? Which someone else just replies, no. Uh, And then the capper for me, uh, if Dylan Danis fights anyone before 2025, I will give a random albino 25 grand. I'm just saying, sometimes a person is just tiresome as all get out on the social medias, but it's the people. It's the power of the people who redeem it by just beating them about the head with with hilarious replies. I'm just saying. I would expect every reply to that tweet to be the why you always lying guy. (laughs) Like just everyone should be that meme. Every week with this guy. (laughs) <laughs> all right that is gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast we will be out in vegas this week for ufc 276 excited to see all the patrons at that if in fact we return unscathed be sure to tune in next week to see the sunburns it's another reason you might, might want to get down with the patreon is the video version of the podcast yeah. shows up every monday afternoon over there at patreon.com slash co-main event and you might want to see the skin tone going on next week we might look like a couple of lobsters sitting here doing the podcast plus we got all the additional content for you check us out over at patreon.com slash co-main event as for right now though we'll talk to you next week thanks for listening we are done we are through we are out some parts may might look like a lobster you know what won't nose nose beak you're gonna be totally beat red except for the nose shining white i mean i might pull a zuckerberg and go with a full kabuki face mask sunscreen out there just if you, if you do anything during this trip that could be described as pulling a zuckerberg i quit i'm done <laughs> walking out no i'm just gonna get